Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We're just days away from the first round of elections in France, and tomorrow, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund begin their spring meetings in Washington. Tom will be there with Francine Lacqua and an incredible lineup of guests. And our coverage begins this morning with John Lipsky, former first deputy managing director of the IMF. He was acting managing director for a time as well. He's now the Peter G. Peterson Distinguished Scholar at the Henry Kissinger Center for Global Affairs in the School of Advanced International Studies at the Johns Hopkins University in Washington. And John Lipsky joins us now from our Bloomberg 99.1 studios in Washington. Great to have you with us uh, again, John. Thanks very much for being here this morning. Thanks. Happy to. Let's start with the, the world economic outlook we got uh, this week. I imagine you've poured over it. And I wonder look. sort of what you've, what, you've, uh, what you've seen there, what you've drawn from it, what that's going to sort of what the, the bedrock is going to be there for the meetings that, that start tomorrow. Well, indeed. The uh, much has been made of the fact that the IMF actually uh, upgraded their growth forecast for 2017, 2018. It's been a long time since they've adjusted their forecasts upwards, but the adjustment is tiny, 0.1%. And in fact, the the trend remains uh, very sluggish growth, especially in the advanced economies. Uh, they're forecasting growth of under 2% when the long-term average for those for the advanced economies has been nearly 3%. So from that longer-term perspective, uh, this is not such a happy picture. And for the emerging economies, they see growth still only at about the uh, at about the long-term average, about four and a half percent. But before the crisis hit in 2007, those countries were growing by seven to eight percent. So it is remains a, a rather modest picture for growth. And the fund continues to say risks are tilted to the downside and points out some specific things that need to be done. So even though the mood music is uh, is a little more upbeat than previously, uh, this is not as good as it should be or could be. Yeah, your former colleague Christine Lagarde telling our friends in Lockwood just a couple of days ago that spring is in the air for, for the global economy. So uh, we can use either metaphor, the mood music or, or, or the, the spring being in the air. Let me ask you about the degree to which the French election is going to distract from the goings-on uh, in Washington uh, this weekend, uh, that being a, a major risk event. Well, indeed. It's uh, mainly uh, because of what it might suggest it, the atmosphere uh, around the European Union is going to be uh, for the coming months. After all, we also have a German election coming in the mm. in the fall. We're going to start uh, uh, the negotiations over so-called Brexit, the UK's departure from the European Union. So this French election could have a fair amount to do with the, the uh, atmosphere surrounding that. And then when we look at the uh, uh, European growth figures, they remain uh, uh, better than they have been still subdued. Uh, the IMF says the European banking system still needs attention. So Europe will continue to be the focus and the French election will provide a kind of weather vane for the, where the wind is blowing. I want to ask you about multilateralism and 
how it relates to, to this current administration. You, you have the IMF meeting this weekend with, with the World Bank in concert with the World Bank. Who's going to make the case for multilateralism and for multilateral institutions? Is this the venue uh, to do it? I know that Christine Lagarde will be on stage with Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. They'll do an interview over the course of, of, of the meetings. Uh, is this the forum to make that case uh, to oh. the U.S. presidential uh, administration? Oh, absolutely. And uh, I'm sure this will be a message that will be repeated uh, many, many times. Uh, the IMF uh, is, of course, trying to lead the way in uh, representing, uh, um, let's call it a, a neutral technical voice, saying that, in fact, international collaboration has a real substance to it and produces better, has the, holds out the, uh, the promise of better economic results. Uh, but remember, the group of 20 uh, foreign finance ministers are meeting tonight and tomorrow. And later this, uh, this year, the, uh, the G20 uh, leaders are going to meet in Germany. And that will be a really critical moment to see how the U.S. intends to, to participate in the G20, will it take a leadership role or an adversarial role or essentially ignore the whole organization, which has been the key venue for the large economies to collaborate on economic uh, Programs. Good morning, everyone. David Gurr and Tom Keenan, New York, in our Washington studios, 99.1 FM Washington studios with the Johns Hopkins University. John Lipsky, of course, his service to Solomon Brothers and J.P. Morgan in recent years. That was a joke. And then his work at the International Monetary Fund. John, you had two tours of duty at the IMF, I believe, as a young lad. Indeed. Minted out of Stanford, you darkened the door. How is the IMF different today from when you first walked in the door with Newt Vixel and John Maynard Keynes. <laughs> well, dramatically different, Tom, because remember, even though the IMF and the, the Bretton Woods system uh, were designed to be international, when I first walked in the door in 1974, uh, the world was still divided by the Cold War, and membership in the IMF was re restricted to Western countries. After 1990, the global system became truly global for the first time, and that was reflected in the IMF and other international institutions. So today, it, yeah. the membership is broader. It's truly a venue for global considerations. You have, you've lived the joy of being the chief pinata as people <laughs> taking shots at you about of the course. forecasting ability of Ken Rogoff and Olivier Blanchard. And now the good professor from Berkeley, Maurice Obsfeld, enjoys uh, being beaten to death. Push back against the harsh critics of IMF guesstimates in the acclaimed blue, green and red books. Help me out here with uh, what they get wrong. Oh, I, but let let me start by saying what they get right. Okay, <laughs> they, I think that the uh, clearly the World Economic uh, Outlook forecast of the IMF remains the principal benchmark forecast for the global economy. Uh, you can uh, uh, like it, disagree with it, uh, but it tends to point to the key issues and discusses them in depth and in a serious way. So it it provides a a tremendously useful benchmark for discussions. Uh, it would be, uh, I think, too narrow to say, well, let's do a scorecard and see if they get it right to the decimal points. It is. It tries to focus on the critical near-term issues. That's, so that's what they get right? Yes, what do they get wrong? Let's put it this way. Let's put it this way. There is a market test. Yes. Uh, it is the benchmark global forecast that you'll find everyone taking into account 
and uh, either agreeing with or disagreeing with. But if it didn't have that basic quality, it wouldn't be the benchmark. John Lipsky, I was talking with Tom yesterday. We were doing a, a Facebook Live, and I said to him, is there a theme for this this year's spring meetings? And he says, there's always a theme, but it gets scrapped just a few hours in. I'm at- <laughs> <laughs> so you mean you're thinking like Mike Tyson. Everyone has, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> is America First going to be the de facto theme of, of, of the conference this weekend? Well, for sure, there's going to be an awful lot of... Uh, uh, interest in the uh, in the new Trump administration's participation uh, in the meetings, and especially not just in the IMF meeting itself, but in the G20 ministerial, and to see uh, whether the uh, what what kind of participation and attitude is projected by the U.S. authorities. But not just not just. After all, we just talked about there there are the live issue of Greece and the the current. Uh, uh, let's call them friendly negotiations between the IMF and the European Union over resolving that. There's the uncertainty about Europe. All of these will be important. But overriding will be the question of, is there the commitment to uh, international cooperation, collaboration, to uh, sustain the international trade and financial system that has produced such good results for such time but seems to be uh, under, under attack? Or uh, where do we stand uh-huh. in that regard? John Lipsky, thank you so much. With the Johns Hopkins uh, University, uh, Dr. Lipsky, of course, for years at J.P. Morgan um, Economics. He wrote the first chapter to my book years ago. Is that right? Uh, David Gurrow with one James Glassman who darkens our door uh, on Jobs Day. Mm. And it was smart. And they were way out front on the job economy. And this mystery, and one of the mysteries here, which is alluded to by Madame Lagarde, but permeates all of our work. Where's the wage growth? Mm. Where's the wage growth in every country? Where's where's the wage growth? And uh, you wonder if that could be the surprise here wrapped around, of course, the French election. It is an appropriate day to speak of fair and balanced. David, Foreign Affairs Magazine actually is fair and balanced. Not that I would editorialize uh, there, but but they're fair and they're balanced. And in their new issue, which is hard-hitting, there are articles in support of where this administration would like to go. That's a good setup, isn't it? David? Absolutely. Gideon, Gideon Rose, Gideon the Rose. editor of Fort Affairs, joining us here uh, in our 1130 studios uh, in New York. Let me go straight to your note at the beginning of the issue here. You talk about the three ways by which you have to disentangle uh, what this administration is doing when it comes to foreign policy. Say so you're looking for the normal, the incompetent, uh, and the dangerous, and you warn here that damage is already uh, being done. What, do you, what did you set out to do with this issue in particular? Well, you know, it's very hard to cover the uh, Trump administration in real time because we are still trying to figure out what's going on, and they're so non-transparent, and they're so unusual. It's also difficult for a magazine like Foreign Affairs for its print edition because we have a long lead time, and so you have to do it. What we wanted to do was evaluate with this issue uh, what they've actually been doing and what the consequences are. And what our, most of our authors are saying is that they really don't know what they're doing on foreign policy and the instincts that they brought to the administration, uh, to, to power, uh, actually are all wrong because 
because they're out to essentially dismantle a global uh, system that actually has been working pretty well. And so uh, their process of what you're seeing this spring and presumably what you'll continue to see over the next few months as well is the education of the Trump administration. They've realized, it seems already, that their initial approach, the Bannon view of the world, just isn't going to fly and doesn't work. Now they're floundering to try to do something else. They've brought in a more moderate people. They've empowered uh, uh, people like Kushner and uh, Cohn and Dina Powell and, and so forth. But I still don't think they have a new actual governing strategy. And since they don't actually have an ideology or a sense of what they want to achieve, uh, no one really knows what they're going to do and they haven't staffed up the administration. So we're all essentially watching and waiting for their process of self-education to get to the point where we can actually get back to the business of running the country and the world. You've got a guy like Bob Cohan uh, of Princeton via Duke and Harvard uh, thinking about the uh, liberal international order. Do you get the sense that that kind of contemplation is happening within the White House? This education is taking place, but does the White House see what it's doing in those sort of broader terms? I think... uh not really. Uh, there's no evidence that this White House actually understands, at least the, the White House, the new people who have come in, understands what the liberal order is, what the system in the global uh, uh, trading networks are and, and security networks, what alliances we have, and how to make that operate. There are a lot of professionals in many parts of the U.S. government, but there's this disconnect between the professional staff of the government, all the technocrats, and the White House. Uh, and while uh, the removal of Flynn and the replacement with McMaster uh, was an excellent sign that brings those professionals closer to the center of power. Uh, it's still not clear that they are actually running things. And at this point, I think everybody is over-interpreting uh, really random decisions and, and actions and words by the administration as if they actually are reflective of some larger strategy. But it's clear they don't. They have no idea what to do on Syria. They don't know what they want to do on trade. They don't know what they want to do on Russia or China. And so we're all waiting until yeah. they kind of figure that out. We've got a minute and a half left. State the case for the president's policy. You do that in your new issue. So the, state, the case for the president's policy is there was a great deal of complacency uh, about how things were going and uh, that was unjustified and that, in effect, sort of like the electoral surprise of the uh, of Brexit and then Trump, uh, there was a, was a recognition by large sectors of the population in America, around the world, that the liberal order that had been keeping sort of things basically stable and moving forward was disproportionately benefiting some groups in society and screwing the middle classes, the lower classes, and uh, not paying enough attention and that those things needed to be remedied. And the best argument so far is that by uh, challenging our assumptions, by moving to address some of the problems with globalization, by sending the signal that the United States can't be pushed around, uh, we are bringing back a certain degree of uh, sober American leadership and confronting real problems that have been brushed under the rug. The problem is you need to have a professional competence uh, developing that into an actual strategy and putting it in place. And we haven't seen that yet, partly because there are no yeah. people in the top echelon of the administration yeah. who actually have good jobs yet. Can I do my usual sales pitch? Sure. Is that okay? <laughs> here's, here's the issue, folks. The, it, it, the heritage of Foreign Affairs magazine is spectacular. Gideon Rose and his team have kicked a new life into it. It is fabulous article to article and short essay to short essay. Their bonus round have it in large, friendly font. <laughs> and my eyes thank you, Gideon. Foreign Affairs Magazine, it's a price of a martini. Get it. <laughs> 
Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens. Yeah, this is fascinating. Robert Kaplan is not your normal Fed president. And critically, he's not the normal Fed president of the heritage Mm. of the Dallas Fed. It goes back to the Georgia School and the good work of Robert McTeer, among others. And then they brought in Kaplan of a small school in Boston (laughs) called Harvard University. Michael McKee picked himself up the floor. Here is our Michael McKee. We're the president of the Dallas Fed. Thank you very much, and we would like to welcome Robert Kaplan, the president of the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank, to Bloomberg Radio and TV Worldwide. Thanks for joining us this morning and having us down here in in the Big D. Welcome to Texas. Glad Uh, to have you here. The consensus forecast for first quarter GDP, 1.5%. So-called hard data has been soft. The soft data has been strong. The yield curve flattening. Tenure coming down a lot, but the uh, fi- financial condition indexes are loosening. Yeah. So what is really going on out there? Is there something happening that we're not picking up? Well, uh, let, me ta- let me start with the last part on the tenure. My own, my own sense is the tenure is, uh, is reflecting the fact that expected GDP growth is going to be uh, maybe sluggish, as it has been the last several years. And also, there's some geopolitical events, particularly what's going on in Europe, uh, potentially other geopolitical events, military and otherwise, that might be causing people on balance to be in the U.S. dollar, be in the 10-year. I think in terms of GDP growth uh, for the first quarter, I think the key underpinning to this economy still, though, for me, is the U.S. consumer. Household balance sheets in the United States are in relatively good shape. Household debt service is in very good shape. So the consumer's got the ability to spend, and they're almost 70% of the economy. The question is, will they spend? Uh, and I think there's also some uncertainties for them. Uh, the health care reform discussion may have some chilling effect on some consumers because they're not sure uh, how much their health care is going to cost, maybe some other uncertainties. So my own view is uh, the the household sector ultimately is going to spend this year because they've got the capacity to. And so I think we'll have a little better GDP growth than first quarter suggests. But I do think because of aging demographics and a number of other headwinds, uh, prospective GDP growth still is challenging. 
and I still think that's the big issue for this country to deal with. Well, the markets have started to price out more aggressive Fed action. The Fed this year sort of pivoted towards a faster pace of yeah. moves. Is there anything that tells you that that pivot may have stopped or slowed? No, I still, I still think uh, uh, the, uh, the three, um, the median of three rate increases for this year, we've already done one, is still a good baseline. Uh, if the economy develops a little more slowly, then we can, we can do less than that. If the economy is a little stronger, we can do more than that. Uh, but I still think we're making good progress toward full employment. There's still some labor slack, but I think we're approaching full employment. The trickier issue is inflation. The work we're doing here in Dallas and our work on the Dallas trim means suggests that core inflation continues to slowly, gradually move up. But I think uh, excess capacity globally, particularly in China, uh, and, and possibly growing because they keep investing in excess capacity in China. And second, technology and technology-enabled disruption, which is impacting businesses' pricing power and also increasingly replacing people with technology. Those are having downward pressure impacts on inflation. So I think the inflation mandate we'll have to watch a little more closely. But I still think, having said all that, that three is probably a good baseline. But patience means to me uh, when I say we should be gradual and patient, it means we, we uh, have the ability and the flexibility uh, to wait and see how the economy unfolds, turn over a few more cards, and I would counsel that that's quite appropriate. That we exercise that patience. Well, it's 75 basis points to, uh, to uh, 1%. The proper setting for rates at this moment, or should they be higher and it's just a process of getting there? Here's how I think about that. Uh, the, the, for me, I always think about what's the neutral rate. I've talked to you before about what's the rate at which we're neither accommodative or restrictive. If you ask me today, I would say that neutral rate, uh, and it's a theoretical rate, uh, and it can change, is closer to two than to three. So if we're at 75 to 100 basis points now, that tells me in that framework, we're still accommodative, but uh, we don't have that much room to get to neutral. So we're accommodative, but probably not as accommodative as people think. Uh, and so that's how I look at it. So I still think 75 to 100 basis points is appropriate place to be. And I think if we continue to make progress on employment and inflation and the economy unfolds around 2% GDP growth, I still think it'll be appropriate to get a little closer to neutral and continue to remove accommodation. For years, I would come down here and ask you, when's the Fed going to raise interest rates? Yeah. But the question Wall Street is asking now is, when is the Fed going to tell us what their plans for the balance sheet are? Uh, how soon do you think we get the program that you want? Uh, my own view has been that we need to get a little further along in so-called normalization of rates before we begin to uh, let the balance sheet run off. For me, I think that could be as soon as later this year or maybe early next year we should begin the process of letting the balance sheet uh, roll off. That means not selling securities. It means letting our Treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities uh, run off as they mature. And I still believe we should do that gradually, patiently, but I think that process, again, could begin as early as at the end of this year. And Ta I think that's appropriate. Tapering 
as uh, yes I think it should be phased in I think it should be gradual and the objective to me ought to be to do it in a way that's gradual enough that we don't have a material impact on either the Treasury market or the mortgage-backed securities markets. A lot of decisions have to be made on the operational aspects of this. When do when could we expect an announcement on that? Uh, I think similar to that time frame. I think I think it's appropriate at least a couple of three months before we begin that we make some type of announcement as to the plan. And so I, I don't want to prejudge what the exact timing of that will be. But again. Uh, if I think we're going to start as soon as later this year, early next year, I think we should make some announcement uh, at least a couple of months in advance of that. Now, uh, the balance sheet question is how big should it be at the end if you're going to determine how you're right. going to taper? Do you have an idea of what you'd like to see? Well, I don't think we have an exact fix on that because that we've got much more global liquidity. We have a different financial regi regime, uh, capital regime. Uh, I, it's going to be bigger than the $800 billion we used to run. Uh, but I think still the balance sheet could be substantially below the $4.5 we are today. And so I think we'll, we'll uh, it'll be lower meaningfully than where it is, but it's going to be higher than it was eight years ago. Do you want to keep substantial excess reserves in the system to be able to continue the repo and IOER system of managing Fed funds? I, th I think for the time being, I think we should. But I also think that's something that would be healthy for us to visit and revisit as this process unfolds. Uh, Fiscal policy. Did you include any stimulus in your forecast for this year that you're having to back off on? No, I've said consistently since this since the election, I'm not explicitly factoring in any fiscal or structural reforms into my forecast. And the reason why is some of the things being discussed, I think, are positive. Uh, inf uh, uh, regulatory review, if it's done thoughtfully, infrastructure spending, if it's done appropriately. Uh, Tax reform, uh, underline the word reform, I think could be helpful. But I also think some of the policies being discussed could be negative, uh, depending on health care, how it's actually dealt with, how we deal with immigration. Uh, I've said consistently the biggest challenge we face in this country is slowing workforce growth. We need policies that either help workers get retrained and discourage workers back into the workforce, but at some point we're going to need policies that probably take a more constructive look at immigration if we're going to grow GDP adequately. And so uh, I think I don't know which of the positive or maybe challenging policies are going to get implemented. And so my, I think the best approach is to do what we've done, which is make a forecast uh, based on things as they are but we'll continue to monitor it and adapt as policies are enacted. Speaking of immigration, you're on the border. You have the greatest interaction with Mexico. Yeah. Have you seen a change in the economic relationship since Donald Trump came to office? Yeah, uh, uh, yes. Uh, I've we've seen a lot of concern. I spent a lot of time, as you know, in Mexico and with the head of the central bank and minister of finance. And my biggest concern would be, I, I, I believe uh, NAFTA will get renegotiated and I'll stay away from the details, but I think it'll, I, I'm confident about that uh, because a lot of those concessions were already made as part of TPP. Um, I think uh, there are other parts of the rhetoric that are, are having some inflammatory effect uh, on the mood, the public mood in Mexico. There's going to be a presidential election in July of 18, and I think the United States benefits enormously 
uh, economically and geopolitically from a good relationship and a constructive relationship with Mexico. And so I want to I, I want to be vigilant that the rhetoric here does not create a situation where uh, uh, it makes it much more likely that the person who gets elected president of Mexico is going to be more negative to the United States. That that may turn out to be the way to get elected in Mexico, and I I, th I don't think that's. Uh, likely to be in the interests either economically or geopolitically of the United States. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member SIPC.